I invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. We are in the final section of John's prologue. We come to the end. He has a little introduction here. It's verses 1 all the way through verse 18. There's an introduction that John is laying out for us, and we've kind of made our way through it. This will be the third message in John's prologue. And the reason why John's writing the introduction is the same reason why he's writing the book. He wants to prove to us that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing in him, we would have life in his name. That's the goal. And so he has done a better job than any of us could do in describing the deity and the majesty and the grandeur of Jesus Christ. And he's going to end in verses 14 through 18, as we see this morning, he's going to end in a beautiful way to just kind of put the exclamation point on his prologue to say, Jesus is the son of God. There is no doubt he is God. There is no question he is God. This is who he is. Remember, we talked early on about John not knowing. Remember John, as he was walking, the rest of the disciples, as they were hanging out with Jesus for his three and a half years of ministry, of public ministry on the earth. They were always asking, who is this man? He must be God. He, the, the wind and the, and the waves, the sea, obey him. He must be God. And then, wait, he's just a man, just like us. He, he cries. He sleeps. He's just like us. He needs to eat. He gets hungry. So he must be a man. And then he raises somebody from the dead. Okay, he must be God. Who is this man? John, in the beginning of his gospel, he wants us to know without a shadow of a doubt. No question. Don't go through what I went through, John is saying. Know right now, Jesus is the Son of God. This prologue actually was a hymn in the early church. There are three main, what we would call Christological um, hymns that are studying the person of Jesus Christ, the person work of Jesus Christ. Christological hymns that were in the early church, even as early as these disciples are writing. Um, the first would be Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. We studied that. That is in the nature of Jesus, the work of Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. We studied that, I believe, last two weeks ago in our, um, our, our home groups of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And then this, this section right here, this prologue in John's gospel, verses 1 through 18. We have found uh, this set to music. We found this set to a, a hymn sort of stanza um, the early church would have sung. What I want to do this morning in these five verses, verses 14 through 18, is just walk through them. And I want to ask a couple questions. Number one, I want to ask, what is John telling us about the glory of Jesus? What is John telling us about the glory of Jesus? He saw Jesus, he knew Jesus, and he's speaking primarily about the glory of Jesus. That's the, the theme of these verses is Jesus' glory and beholding it. So I want to see what John says about the glory of Jesus. And then secondly, I want to see the ways in which Jesus is glorious. We'll see it as we go through, but then I want to synthesize it all together. And then I want to ask the question, why does it matter? Why does it matter? We're going to look at what John says. We're going to see that Jesus truly is glorious, but we need to ask the question, why does that matter? What does that have to do with us today? So number one, what does John say about the glory of Jesus? Let's read it together. John chapter one, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, because he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. So, what does John say about the glory of Jesus? Well, he starts by saying the word became flesh. We're brought back to this title for Jesus, the word. He's been called the word. He's been called the light. He's been called the life. And now he is called again the word. The word is God, right? You remember John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the word, so he's always existed. And the word was with God, so he is God and he's with God. So we already begin to see the Trinity. And he was God. He was by very nature God. So he's with God. He is God. He was God. He existed before everything existed. He created it all. He is God. And yet John says, God became flesh. God became flesh. Those two words, became flesh in our English. Those are two very specific Greek words that John is using very carefully. There are so many ways to say, I see a human. In in Greek, there's so many ways to say, I see somebody who is a human. I see a man. I see a woman. There's so many ways to say that. But all of them could have some level of, I see the appearance of, I see what looks like, I see the likeness of. And John uses two very specific, carefully crafted Greek words to say, God was a human. There's no doubt about it. There's no question about it. Jesus was human. Now, why does he say that? Why is he careful to say it? It is truth, number one. It's just truth that he's going to teach us. But there are two specific heresies that John is arguing against here that he would have been dealing with in about 90 A.D. The first heresy is docetism, and the second heresy is Gnosticism. The only reason why I give you those words and why you should know that is because, number one, you're going to see that in the rest of Scripture. In Colossians, Paul is fighting against Gnosticism. You're going to see it in a lot of the letters that Paul writes. But number two, these heresies still exist today in cults. These heresies still exist today in false teachings. So if you know these heresies from way back when, from the time of the early church, then you're going to say, like Solomon, nothing new under the sun. That lie has been around for a long time, and we know the truth. Docetism. Docetism says... Jesus' physical appearance is simply an illusion. He looks like a human, but he's not truly human. He's God, very God, but he's not human, very human. He just looks human. This is the Superman syndrome. He's just putting on the Clark Kent outfit to make us think he's human, but he's really just God. He's really just Superman. Gnosticism is similar to it. Gnosticism says that the spiritual, spirit matter, spiritual matter is good. Physical matter is evil. That's why Paul's going to address Gnosticism in in Colossians chapter 2 when he says asceticism doesn't work. Um, People were um, working on asceticism to say, look, I'm going to get away from 
material pleasure and material things, and then I'll be good because material is bad. Matter equals evil, spirit equals good. So to a Gnostic, there's no way Jesus could have taken on physical matter to himself because that's evil. So he was only God and not truly human. That's why John says, no, he became flesh. He was born. He's a man. He is 100% human. There's no doubt about it. He didn't take on the illusion of humanity. He didn't just look like a human. Let me give you some verses. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. Paul writes, In Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Paul's writing against Gnosticism, and so he says, All the fullness of deity dwelt in a body. Now, the Gnostics would have said, Body equals matter equals evil equals sin. And that's why Paul says, no, no, he was in a body and he was sinless. He, he goes to lengths in his argument to say all the fullness of God dwelt in a body. We know Philippians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. Jesus was made in the likeness of humankind. That word likeness is a bad translation. He's made in the exact representation of what it means to be a human. If you're a human, then Jesus was exactly like you. Exactly like you. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise also partook of the same. What's the same? Flesh and blood. That through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. The author of Hebrews gives us one reason why he had to be human, because he had to die. He had to die. Any assault on Jesus' deity is absolutely dangerous, right? If we say he was just a good teacher, a good human, a good moral uh, teacher, that's obviously wrong, and that's obviously heretical. But it is equally as heretical to say he was 100% God and had the illusion of humanity. That's equally as dangerous. He was 100% God and 100% man at the exact same time. The Word became flesh. That's why... The angel Gabriel in the beginning of Matthew tells Mary and Joseph, you're going to call his name Emmanuel because God is with us. God is here and he is showing up in a little baby that's going to grow up to be a man. The one true eternal God became human. The infinite one became finite. The eternal one entered time. An eternal being stepped into time. The omnipresent one became confined in the space of a human body. The invisible God became visible. The church of Jesus Christ has always believed that. It's always proclaimed that. It's always demanded that any other view of Jesus Christ is absolutely unacceptable. And by the way, when Jesus stepped into time and took on humanity, took on flesh, He did it never to have those two natures separated again. Jesus humbled himself to the point of becoming a human, dying the death that he died on the cross. Then he rose to newness of life, but he didn't shed his humanity. One of the utterly humiliating things that happened to Jesus when he stepped into our world is that he will forever be like us, forever. We will see him in heaven just like we will see other glorified humans. 
just the same way that Jesus was seen by the disciples after the resurrection. They saw him. They were able to touch him. He was able to eat same exact glorified body that you and I are going to have. He didn't have that body before the incarnation. And he humbled himself to the place of forever taking upon that body, that humanity for us. The word became flesh. And John says the word dwelt among us, literally tabernacled or pitched a tent in our world, in our, uh, among us, in our camp. He tabernacled among us. Now, what is John doing? What does he do with tabernacle? Why does he bring in tabernacle? In verse 17, he's going to bring in Moses, and he's going to bring in the law. He's bringing in Old Testament concepts. What's he doing? He's doing something that's amazing that I don't even know if we're going to be able to fully explain in 40 minutes. We'll see if we can. But what he is doing is unbelievable. Let's start by looking at Exodus chapter 33. Go to Exodus 33. To fully understand John 1, 14 through 18, you need to know Exodus 32 through 34, those chapters. You need to know those chapters. So turn to Exodus 33. And in verse 7, we read, Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp. That word tent, tabernacle, dwelling place. And he did it a good distance from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting, the tabernacle of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. And it came about whenever Moses went out to the tent that all the people would arise and stand, each at the entrance of his tent, and gaze after Moses until he entered the tent. Whenever Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. When all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would arise and worship. God was there. They knew that. Each at the entrance of his tent. Thus, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. And when Moses returned to the camp, his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Go to chapter 34, verse 29. It came about when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai, and he had the two tablets of the testimony, and they're in his hand as he's coming down. Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because of speaking with God. So when Aaron and all the sons of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Then Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the rulers in the congregation returned to him, and Moses spoke to them. Afterward, all the sons of Israel came near, and he commanded them to do everything that the Lord had spoken to him on Mount Sinai. When Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take the veil off until he came out, and whenever he came out, and he would speak to the sons of Israel what he had been commanded. The sons of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone. So Moses would put the veil back over his face until he went in to speak with him. John is saying, remember what happened in Exodus. Remember there was a tent of meeting and Moses used to do two things. He would speak face to face with God just as a man speaks with a friend. So he would speak face to face with God. But the second thing that would happen is he would not be able to be unchanged by speaking to him. 
His face would shine because the glory of God was so brilliant, so bright, so beautiful that as Moses spoke with God and the glory of God would shine on his face, then his face would in turn shine. So when when John says the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. He's alluding back to the old time of the tabernacle where God's presence and his glory dwelt. So first, what is John saying about Jesus's glory? He's saying that it was present. God's glory was in Jesus tabernacling among us. But you remember the tabernacle was done away with and then the tabernacle became the temple and then the temple was destroyed and God's presence left. Remember that terrible day? God's glory was gone and it was not seen anymore in one localized place. And so what John is saying is now it's seen again. The glory of God was once in a tent and then it was in a temple and now it's in a person. The glory of God that was inside of the tabernacle is the same glory of God that was inside of the temple is the same glory of God that is inside of Jesus. The same glory of God. So, of course, he's going to say he dwelt among us and we saw his glory. And it's glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Of course, he's going to say that because he's speaking about the time when the glory of God was shining in the, temper, in the tabernacle, the time when the glory of God was shining in, in the temple, and now the glory of God is shining through a person. We beheld his glory. I, I memorized it in the New King James. We beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten. So John is saying that Jesus became flesh. He became human. And he was a, a tent. He was the tabernacle among us. In the same exact way that the tabernacle and the temple stood in the Old Testament, God's glory was shining through Jesus Christ. We saw his glory. What kind of glory is the kind of glory that Jesus is shining. John tells us it was glory as of the only begotten from the Father. Now that word as is tricky, and it's no less tricky in the Greek. That word as could mean like. His glory looked like the glory of God, but it's not really the glory of God. But it can also mean equal to. And I think... I think you know this in English. Um, If I were to say, Tim, I have an extra ticket to Disneyland, and I'd like to take you as my first choice. Um, Tim would not be offended. I wasn't his first choice, but he's going to take me like I was his first choice. No, I'd like to take you as my first choice, as my first choice, because you are my first choice. That's the way that this word is being used. We saw... Jesus' glory, which is glory that is equal to the Father. It's equal to God himself. He is the only begotten from the Father. Only begotten or begets. That's a rough translation. Um, it's, It's one and only is a better translation. It's uniquely one. There's no other like him. But it brings about the concept of being the son of God, God's son. If you were to tell a Muslim, God the Father had a son, they would say yes. And that happened because God the Father had intimate relations with Mary, 
physically, and Jesus was the offspring. Is that what John means when he talks about Jesus being the Son of God? This is a tricky phrase. There's two tricky phrases that you see. We've seen one in John. We're going to see it all over the place in John, Son of God. And you also see it in Colossians. We've seen it already. He's the firstborn. So I figured this would be a good time just to briefly describe what those two things mean. Is Jesus the literal son of God? Well, son of, that phrase son of, can absolutely mean literal physical offspring, literal physical descendant. Numerous times in the scriptures it means that. But son of can also mean something else. It can mean equal to. Son of means equal to in a couple places in scripture. Let me give you just one In the book of John, John chapter 17, verse 12, Jesus calls Judas the son of perdition. It doesn't mean that Judas was a physical offspring, a literal baby from hell and some other thing. What does it mean? He's equal to hell. He's equal to all of the evil that is represented in hell. He's equal to. He's the son of. In the Jewish culture today, just as it was back then, You actually don't even call your offspring son or daughter until they go through their bar mitzvah. Like, for instance, my son, Ethan, if I was a good Jewish man, I wouldn't call him my son yet. He would simply be my child. And he's my child until he goes through a bar mitzvah. And when you go through a bar mitzvah, bar means son of, mitzvah is the law. So you are now accountable. You are accountable to the law. Before, if you used to do something bad, it would fall on me because I'm supposed to be responsible for you. But now you are a son of the law. You are accountable for yourself. And now I would call you not only a son, bar of the law, bar mitzvah, I would also call you my son, meaning you are equal to me. We're equally adults now. They do this in Israel today. Little child, little child, little child, son of. You are my son. You are my son saying, you're my equal under the law. You are equal to me under the law. So son of can mean physical, literal. can also just mean equal to. And that's what's being spoken in the whole gospel of John, that Jesus is equal to. When you see son of God, equal to God. Equal to God. Firstborn, similar idea. Firstborn can have two meanings. When you see the word firstborn, like we've seen in Colossians chapter 1, it can mean literal firstborn, the the first in the order of kids. But it can also mean the preeminent inheritor. You remember the firstborn received something. The firstborn received the inheritance. Remember David? Uh, Psalm 89, verse 27, David is called the firstborn. Now that should be a head scratcher because he was absolutely not the firstborn. You remember Samuel goes to figure out Who's going to be the next king goes to Jesse's house and starts with the firstborn. Nope, 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 goes all the way down the line. David's not the firstborn, but Jesus, or God specifically, says to him, you are the firstborn. He's not, but he is. What is it a reference to? It's a reference to the kingdom that David is going to inherit. You are the firstborn. You are the inheritor. So if I wanted to say that you are going to inherit something, I would say you are the firstborn of that thing. So when Paul says in Colossians 1, you are the firstborn of all creation, you own it. You're preeminent over it. You're not the first created being. You are the owner of it all. 
So son of just means equal to. Firstborn just means preeminent. It means the person who is the inheritor over something. So when John says that Jesus shone forth the glory that only comes from one who is equal to the Father, he's giving us immense theology to say Jesus is God. Jesus is God. There's no doubt about it. And his glory was full of grace and truth. His glory was full of grace and truth. We're going to come back to those two words, grace and truth, in a little bit. Verse 15, ESV, I think, does a very good job by putting parentheses here. Verse 15 is really a parenthetical statement. It's John testifying. This is John, we'll call him John B. He's John the Baptist. We have John A, the apostle, and John B, the Baptist. So this is John B. John A is telling us that John B testified about Jesus and cried out saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I because he existed before me. Why the parenthetical statement? He already did one of these back in verses 6 through 8. Why this parenthetical statement again? Can I just give you the reason? Deuteronomy 17, verse 6, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, it will be confirmed. It's not enough for John to pull a LeVar Burton to say, um, I, I, I know this. He has to say at the end of his quote, don't take my word for it, right? He has to say that. End of reading Rainbow every time. Hey, these are great books, but don't take my word for it. You have to go check it out for yourself. That's what he's saying here. Guys, it's obvious Jesus is God. There's no doubt about it, but don't take my word for it because I'm just one witness and I'm going to bring another witness. And this witness is saying this guy who's going to be younger than me is better than me because he never had a beginning. He existed before me. He is God. That's why there's a parenthetical statement here. As John A. is trying his hardest to prove that Jesus is God, he says, let's call upon a witness. John B. will remind us. And in verses 19 through 37, we are going to get the first narrative of John the Baptist doing his ministry work. So, verse 16. After the parenthetical statement, this is so helpful. For of his fullness we have all received in grace upon grace. If you take it right after 14, the word became flesh, dwelt among us. We saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the father, full of grace and truth because his fullness we've all received. We saw it because we received it and grace upon grace, grace upon grace. We've seen God's glory in the face and the work and the person of Jesus Christ of his fullness. Why does he use that word fullness? Uh, if you think of a cup, think of a cup that's filled up with something. If I have a little sippy cup for my daughter, filled up with orange juice, it's a little bit of orange juice, right? It's not that big. It's full. It's not a lot of orange juice. If I go to 7-Eleven and I get a super duper size of some Slurpee there, it's full, but it's bigger, it's fuller, it's more massive than my daughter's little sippy cup. So if we say that Jesus has the fullness of grace and truth and glory, and we, we understand that there is no container that can contain him, you can't put his glory and grace and truth inside of a bottle, then it's a lot. <laughs> it's fuller than full. It's overflowing. And we have received that. 
We've received grace upon grace. Why have we been given grace upon grace, John? Why are you telling us that we've been given grace? How have we been given grace? Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. So again, why the law? Why Moses? Why are you going back to these Old Testament concepts? What are you saying, John? Now, if you go to a Paul-type thinking here, where the law is it's good, but it's really bad because all it can do is show us our sin and that's it. And so Jesus came to fulfill it completely. You're right, but I think you're missing the emphasis of what John is saying here. We have to turn back to Exodus chapter 33 again. We have to, we have to go back here because I think in the exact same context of Exodus 32 through 34, John is going to remind us of someone who desperately sought the glory of God. If you were to ask any, any Jewish person, who is the best Old Testament example of a person desperately seeking to see the glory of God? They'd all say Moses. They'd all say Moses. Remember, this passage is about glory. And so John remembers, hey, there was somebody who got to see some glory. And it was Moses. Exodus chapter 33, verse 18. Then Moses said, I pray you, speaking to Yahweh, show me your glory. I want to see it. God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. (laughs) Moses says, that's not what I wanted. (laughs) Show me your glory. I'll make all my goodness. No, no, I want to see your glory. But God is saying, my goodness is my glory. And then he says this, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. Then the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me and you shall stand there on the rock and it will come about. My glory is passing by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away and you shall see my back, but not my face shall be seen. You'll see just the fringes of my glory, but you can't see my whole glory or else you're going to die. It is glory. It's God's glory that always makes people who see him fall to their knees. When they see glimpses of it, they can't even stand up. So God says, you can't see my whole glory else you would die. But I have a plan. You'll see the fringes of my glory. And I'm going to pass by you and proclaim the goodness and the name of the Lord. And we we read that in verse 5 and 6 of 34, chapter 34. This is when this actually takes place. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with Moses as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord. He said, I'm going to let you know my name, and it is Yahweh, the one who has always existed. Yahweh, I've always been. I am. I've always been. Compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. There is sin to be dealt with, but I am filled with loving kindness. You see at the end of verse 6, he says, I am abounding 
in loving kindness and truth. Verse 17 of John 1, the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Those are the same words, loving kindness and truth. God the Father showed Moses through the law and through other means the grace and truth that were present in himself, in his nature. But then he went away. He was a cloud, then he went away. He was in the tabernacle, then he went away. He was in the temple, then he went away. Moses says, I want to see the glory of God. And he says, you can't fully, but you'll know me by these things, my grace and my truth. And here comes a man filled with grace and truth who images the glory of the God that Moses desperately wanted to seek the glory of. That's why verse 18 is... It's obvious. It's natural. It's a natural byproduct of verse 17. No one has seen God. Moses sure couldn't see him. If Moses had looked at God, he would have died. Nobody has seen God at any time. That's what Moses was wanting. Guess what, everybody? Jesus shows us the perfect glory of God. Nobody's seen him, but the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, that's, that's a very antiquated way of saying just in an intimate relationship with um, that word bosom is translated bay in Acts to refer to an inlet. It's also translated other places to refer to the fold of a garment. So tucked away in, intimately related to. No one has seen God, but there is one who is intimately related to God, namely Jesus, who is God, who has explained God. That word explained is the word, Greek word where we get exegesis from. Jesus exegeted God to us. He explained God. He taught us who God was, who God is, and who God will always be. So why bring in the law? Why talk about Moses? Because if there was anybody who desperately wanted to see the glory of God, it was Moses. And he got to see a little bit of it through the law, a lot of it through the law. He got to see a lot of it through the interaction that he had with God while he was receiving the law. But there is somebody who is coming that is better, far, far better. Paul picks up on this theme in 2 Corinthians. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. You just need to see this because I think it's very helpful to explain what John is talking about. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7. Paul refers to the law as the ministry of death. He says, it's done. It's died. It's no longer able to do what it was supposed to do in a holistic way. Now all it does is point us, and it points us beautifully to a Savior. It's a ministry of death, verse 7. All it does is condemn. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 7. If the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones, that's the law, came with glory. Oh, it's a ministry of death, but it was a glorious ministry of death. That's why we can't throw the law away. That's why Jesus didn't throw the law away. That's why we love the Old Testament. Jesus said in Matthew 5, I did not come away to not I did not come to do away with the law. I'm not here just abolishing the law to destroy it. I'm here to fulfill it in its entirety. I'm here to realize it, to use John's language in John 1. That law that Moses received that he gave to the children of Israel was a glorious thing. It was a safe thing. It was a protecting thing. So 
So it came with glory, middle of verse 7, so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory on his face, or of his face, fading as it was. We read about all these stories, all these accounts. God's glory shone clearly in this account. So, verse 8, how will the ministry of the Spirit through the gospel, saving people in Jesus Christ, fail to be even more with glory? Of course we're going to see more glory in the person of Jesus than in the law. Why? Because if the ministry of the condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had glory in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. That's what John is saying here. In John 1, he is saying, Moses received grace and truth in God the Father, and it was glorious. But Jesus has come filled with grace and truth, and it is even more glorious. He explains the Father. You want to see, Moses desperately wanted to see God. Guess what? If you want to see God, just look at Jesus. That's what Jesus says. John chapter 14, verse 9. Jesus says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. No one can see the Father, but we can see the Father. No one can see him, verse 18. But Jesus says, if you stare at me, you can see him. John chapter 12, verse 44. John 12, 44, Jesus says, if you have seen me, then you have seen the one who sent me. You have seen the Father. So John, in the end of his prologue, he is simply saying, Jesus is the full representation of the glory of God in human flesh, so that we can know and understand God in a way that we never could have before through the law. He is fully God. He is the Son of God. He is God, very God, come in the flesh. That's what John is saying about the glory of Jesus. So, let's sum it up. Number two, what are the ways in these verses in which Jesus is glorious? Number one, we behold the glory of Jesus in his humility. We behold the glory of Jesus in his humility. Verse 14, Jesus steps out of heaven to become one of us. We sang about it. You came from heaven's throne. You were a king. You are a king. You are God, very God, and yet you are going to step outside of time, or step into time, step outside of eternity, step into humanity. And that, that is glorious. That's the whole point of Philippians chapter 2. Paul's whole point is, you guys, stop bickering, stop fighting, be unified. And the way that you do that is through humility. And the best way to see that demonstrated is Jesus Christ, his person and his work. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be clung to and grasped onto and not let go. He came down. That is glorious to see the condescension of our Savior. Number two, we behold the glory of Jesus in his deity He is the only begotten from the Father. He is the Son of God. He is the one and only unique representation of the Father. Verse 18, no one has seen God at any time, but if you see Jesus, you see God. Verse 15, even though he's younger than John the Baptist, he's older than John the Baptist because he existed before John the Baptist. We, be, we behold the glory of Jesus in his deity. Number three, we behold the glory of Jesus in his eternality. That again is verse 15. He existed before me. He never had a beginning. That is glorious to think about. He is completely set apart, completely unlike us, and yet he became one of us. Number four, we behold the glory of Jesus 
in the fullness of his grace and his truth. So we behold the glory of Jesus in his humility. We behold the glory of Jesus in his deity. We behold the glory of Jesus in his eternality. And lastly, we behold the glory of Jesus in the fullness of his grace and his truth. We already talked about fullness. He's overflowing with grace and truth. Martin Luther said, This spring of his grace and his truth is inexhaustible. It is full of grace and truth from God. It never loses anything, no matter how much we draw but it remains an infinite fountain of all grace and truth. The more you draw from it, the more abundantly it gives of the water that springs into eternal life. Just as the sun is not darkened by the whole world enjoying its light and could indeed light up ten worlds, just as 100,000 lights might be lit from one light or a candle might be lit from one candle and not detract from it, just as a learned man is able to make thousand others learned and the more he gives, the more he has, so is Jesus Christ our Lord, an infinite source of all grace, so that if the whole world would draw enough grace and truth from him to make the world all angels and saints, yet it would not lose a drop. The fountain always runs over full of grace and truth. Why is this so amazing that Jesus came filled with grace and truth? Because he could have come as an executioner. He could have come as our judge, and he would have been right to do that. He came full of grace and truth, and this is the period of time we live in. Turn to John 3, verse 17. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He could have come as our judge and our executioner, but he came as a gracious shepherd. Why the combination of grace and truth? Obviously, there's an emphasis of grace because verse 16, he's full of grace upon grace, abounding in grace. What is the relationship between grace and truth, specifically in the person and work of Jesus? How does it demonstrate glory? John says that he saw the glory of Jesus in his grace and his truth. Let me say it this way. Grace is informed, this specific grace is informed by truth. It's not wishy-washy, sentimental grace. God the Father, unlike what most people think about God, could not say, you know what, you sinned, you offended me, but let's just let bygones be bygones. He could never say that. Why? Because he's filled with truth. We saw that even in Exodus 33 and 34. I am abounding with grace, with loving kindness, with truth, but I will also visit the, the sin of the sinners who commit offense against God with punishment, with vengeance. Truth says God's glory has been defamed and his justice demands for a punishment. Grace, this grace is informed by that. So what does Jesus do? He clothes himself in humanity. He becomes fully human so that he can die. Truth abounds at the cross because on the cross sin is punished. Truth abounds at the cross. Grace abounds at the cross because we don't get punished. Our sin gets punished, but God is gracious and doesn't punish us. That's why Jesus had to be human. That's why we have to uphold the humanity of Jesus Christ, because if he's not human, he can't have nails be driven through his hands and his feet. He needed to have flesh so that he could die. What difference does verse 14 make for us? It makes all the difference in the world. 
that Jesus became a human so that grace and truth, truth could be realized on the cross as our sin is paid for, grace could be realized on the cross as our sin is covered, done away with, and we are, we are let go. We're coming to a season of Easter, which is just my favorite time of the year, where we get to remember this and celebrate this. We need to remember that God's glory is seen most in his grace and his truth. That's what John's saying here. You might say, okay, John says we saw, we beheld his glory with our eyes, but we can't, right? I mean, we don't see, we don't have Jesus here. We don't see him. What about us? That's why Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17, that the eyes of your heart, not the eyes of your head, would be open. That's why when Jesus talked to the Pharisees and said, seeing you do not see, he's referring to there's two sets of eyes, eyes of the head, eyes of the heart. And the blessed news for us this morning is that the eyes of our heart can absolutely see Jesus. The eyes of our head might not see him. He's not here physically. But the eyes of our hearts see him, especially when we stare at the cross. We don't need to see him to see glory. It's not like he's walking around like many of the paintings and movies show him with you know, glory around him and a halo. Um, Isaiah 53 says that if we saw him, we would not even think he's amazing. We'd kind of say, hey, you need braces, um, might need a haircut here and there, uh, and you don't smell too good, okay? I don't know who you are, but just get with the program, buddy. Nobody would care. Nobody would look at him and go, something special about him. <laughs> he's beautiful. He's handsome. Every time he speaks, it's just glorious, and there's like a glow around his face. Something's unique. Nope, that wouldn't have happened. That didn't happen. Isaiah tells us that didn't happen, which is a blessing for us because it's not about staring at the, the person of Jesus in a physical body. It's about staring at, at his work, at his grace, at his truth, at his miracles, at how amazing he is. That's what we're going to do this entire study. So that's what John is telling us about God's glory through Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus behold, beholding Jesus' glory, we can see it in those four points. Finally, last point, number three. Why does it matter? Who cares? This is where I want to just bring it all together. Maybe there's been some heady stuff. Maybe there's been stuff that still doesn't make sense. I hope this will make sense. Why does glory matter? Why does beholding glory matter? It's one of the main points of this gospel. It's one of the reasons why I wanted to study it. Turn to John 17. John 17, verse 24. Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also disciples, followers of Jesus Christ, whom you have given me, be with me where I am. So he's praying for you and for me. He's saying, I want them to be with me. I want them to be in heaven. It's amazing. Whenever I read this, I always think Jesus is absolutely praying for our death because the only way we can get to heaven is if we die. This is an amazing verse, and I can't wait to get to this section of this gospel in the high priestly prayer. But why, Jesus? Why do you want us to be in heaven so much? so that they may see my what? My glory, which you have given me. For you love me before the foundation of the world. What's the greatest thing about heaven? It's beholding the glory of God. It's beholding the glory of God in Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus wants us to be in heaven. There's a lot of amazing things happening in heaven, but the best thing that's happening in heaven is us finally, with an unadulterated mind, being able to behold the glory of Jesus Christ. Why does that matter for us now? Why should we behold his glory now? Let's think about the gospel, okay? Romans chapter 3, verse 23. All have sinned and fallen short of what? 
the glory of God. So we know that God's glory, um, based on Isaiah 6, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. His, the whole earth is filled with his glory. God's glory is his holiness, his character, his attributes on display for all to see. He has the nature of holiness, and us being able to see that nature is his glory. It's his holiness going public. So we've fallen short of the holiness of God, the glory of God. You know that word sin, hamartia in the Greek, that means missing the mark, right? We've missed the mark. Glory is the mark we're trying to hit. That's the mark, and we've missed it. We've missed it. Here's my question. What are we missing it with? Um, If there's a mark, if we have a bullseye of God's glory, and that's what we're trying to hit, and we miss it when we sin, my question is, what are the arrows that we're shooting that target with? The answer is worship. We are shooting at God's glory with our worship. We are trying to, and this fits with everything we're talking about in Family Bible Hour, we're trying to hit the glory of God and be satisfied by God's glory and nothing else. This is the whole um, idolatry series that we went through. We find other things. We take aim at God's glory, and then we see fame, and we shoot at fame instead of the glory of God. We see God's glory in our vision. We should be satisfied by him alone with our worship, ascribing our worship to him and being satisfied with who he is for us and has promised to be. And then we see um, money. We see sex. We see love. We see anything else. We, we start shooting our arrows at anything other than God. So our worship is our problem. When we sin, our worship doesn't stop. It just simply changes directions. When we miss the mark, it's not like we don't hit anything. We hit something. We hit something other than God. So we worship our way into sin. How do we get out of it? We have to worship our way out of sin. Whatever sin you are struggling with, the way to get out of it is not by staring at that sin and trying to fix that sin. The way to get out of it is stare at the bullseye of God's glory and you'll be changed. I had the amazing privilege of being raised in the church and there's a huge pro to that. Don't get me wrong. I consider that a a privilege and a blessing. But when you are raised in the church, your knowledge of God can become something that is even worse than demonic because demons have the ability still to shudder in awe at who God is. And there are many times we pull the arrow back and we stare at God's glory and we go, we know who he is. I know who he is. You know who he is. We know the gospel. We can say it. We're good. Let's shoot at something else. His glory is not pervasive enough in our hearts. I don't ever want to forfeit the ability to tremble and stand in awe at who my God is. Another reason why we have to have gravity in our worship services. So, if you want to see some of God's glory, you need to stare at that bullseye. What's the best way to stare at the bullseye of God's glory? What's the best way to do that? You can totally look at a sunset. That's good to do. It's helpful to do. You can see God's glory in a sunset, yes. But the apex of the glory of God is the cross. There is nothing more glorious than a holy God loving, ruined sinners with a radical, transforming, gracious, truthful love. That's why 2 Corinthians 4.4 says something very helpful, and you need to hear it. You don't have to turn to it, but you need to hear it. Paul says that the, the minds of the unbelievers have been blinded to see the light of the gospel of the glory of God. 
It's not the light of the glory of God in the gospel. It's the light of the gospel of the glory of God. Gospel is not the end. Glory is the end. Gospel is the frame. Glory is the painting. Salvation is a means to an end of savoring our God, of staring at the glory of our God and being transformed. How are we transformed by the glory of God, specifically the apex of the glory of God in the cross of Jesus Christ? Martin Lloyd-Jones um, always gave this illustration. Imagine if you left a number of bills on your dining room table this morning. You came to church with a number of bills. I actually did this. I have some bills that need to be paid, car registration, uh, electric bill, and gas bill. Imagine if I go home and all of those bills have been paid by somebody. I would be very happy. It would be like, yes, this is great. Thank you so much. But the amount of my happiness is dependent upon the bills that are on that table, right? If, if you pay my gas bill that I think is $33 this month, that's great. Awesome. Um, I, I could get that through reward points on my credit card. Don't get me wrong. If somebody wants to pay that, praise the Lord. But let's say I have 50 years for the hyperbole because I'm not even 50, but let's say I have 50 years of back taxes that the IRS has, has found and I owe $300,000 and that bill is lying on my dining room table and you come to my house and you pay that bill. The first bill that's paid, I'll say, thanks. <laughs> thanks for paying the gas bill. The second bill, I will say, well, what do I do? You command me. I surrender everything to you. I, I, my life is yours. You paid $300,000 for me? What am I supposed to do? When we naturally look at Jesus Christ, when we see him paying our penalty, if we understand the penalty that we deserve and we see him paying it, it's even more than that IRS tax evasion bill that would be paying. How could we not say, you are amazing? If you were here this morning and with your lips... You say, Lord, command me. You are amazing. But with your lifestyle, you say, yeah, thanks, man. That's awesome. Thank you. Those aren't corresponding. It's another reason why we stare at our sin through song, to remember the penalty that Jesus paid. We have to go there. If you're saying, you know what? Thanks, God. I really appreciate it. And you're treating it as if he paid your gas bill then you truly have not seen the glory of Christ. Maybe you have and you've forgotten it. But you need to stare at God's glory again. You need to. The brightest gem in the crown of God's glory is his goodness, Charles Spurgeon said. Stare at his goodness. John Piper says the panorama of his perfections is the end of our soul's quest for eternal satisfaction. He is infinite, and that answers to our longing for completeness. He is eternal, and that answers to our longing for permanence. He is unchangeable, and that answers to our longing for stability and security. There is none like God. Nothing can compare with him. Money, sex, power, popularity, conquest, nothing can compare with God. So why is it important that we can behold the glory of God in Jesus Christ? It's the only way we can be saved. Just as Moses raised up the serpent in the wilderness and said, if you look at this, you will be saved. So too, if we look, if you think of justification as a looking and a beholding of Jesus Christ, sanctification is a staring at Jesus Christ. Look at Jesus 
and be saved. Stare at Jesus and be sanctified. Let us, as Christ Bible Church, make the aim of our lives one unflinching gaze upon the glory of Jesus. That is our goal. Father, we thank you so much for your kindness and your grace to us that is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you that we can sing, that we can adore you through song, and thank you for songs about the gospel and the glory of the cross. I pray that you would become more glorious in our eyes and we would be changed because of your glory. Not that you are small, but we have made you to be small. We need you to be magnified in our, in our eyes, in the, the eyes of our hearts. We need you. And we need to save your glory. May we do that by staring at the sunset. May we do that by enjoying fellowship with one another. May all of those things point us to the glory of God, yes. But may we stare with an unflinching gaze at the cross where the truest glory can be found, grace and truth realized in the person and work of Jesus. We thank you. We love you. We long to love you more. Fix our eyes upon the glory of Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.